Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. And welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. And this time on Neon, I'm doing something a bit weird because I'm dealing with something that's truly unique, but opens up a whole new area of discussion about modern technology and history. This time, I'm talking about the documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. Which means I am going to have to talk about modern computer digitization and its impact on our understanding of the past. We're going to have to talk about the manipulation of stories and documentary footage and whether that's a good or a bad thing. So in essence, we're going to be talking about, well, is the truth the truth? So, before we get going, it's always worth pointing out, you can continue the conversation. As always, you can go to Neon Podcast on Twitter. We'll be getting lots of tweets. Thank you very much for your support there. You can speak to me. I'm Jem Daduccio. And funnily enough, that name was still available on Twitter when I went uh, went looking for it. So I'm at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. You will also find Neon Podcast on Facebook. And we have a Patreon page if you like this. And we will be starting to add some more content onto that. But just generally, if you like the Neon Podcasts, please, please do support us financially on patreon.com forward slash Neon Podcast. And if you've got no money, please do give us a review on whatever podcasting app you're listening to us on. It all helps to spread the word and help us grow the neon revolution. But if we're going to be talking about revolutions, let's talk about the digital revolution. And if you aren't aware of what the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old is, I will explain it to you, okay? So you may know that when you see some of this silent footage, it may be footage from World War One, it may be something like a Charlie Chaplin movie or something like that, everybody moves funny. That's because we're at the very beginnings of movie technology and they weren't actually sure how many frames per second you should run a camera to give the sense of movement. It's worth pointing out that fundamentally... 
what film or indeed digital movies are all about is piecing together a series of still photos that flash so quickly that it gives the illusion of movement. And it does a very good job. We all see it as as movement. But round about then... Well, sometimes it was 18 frames a second, sometimes it was 20 frames a second, but what we know now is 24 frames per second is the minimum you need for things to look normal, human, natural, call it whatever you like. So that's why, whether you speed it up or slow it down, it never looks quite right to the the modern viewing eye, I should say. So, Peter Jackson... Yes, that guy who directed the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, he has always been a bit of a history buff, and he also has a vested interest in this because his grandfather served in the British Army in World War One. He he actually made it through the war. So, what's you know he he had this vested interest. He understands technology. This is the man who brought Middle Earth to to life. It's also the man who perhaps went a little too far with the frames per second and the sort of the di- digital recording on something like The Hobbit. There are a few people talking about the that didn't work. These sort of super sharp images uh, and things like that. So let's not go down that rabbit hole, shall we? But the man understands both a a vision and story, but also the technology you need to make all this work. So what he decided to do was basically pull together a whole load of footage from World War I and to run it through a computer and basically add the missing frames to turn something that had been filmed in 20 frames per second into 24 frames per second, giving it a far more natural movement. Then... He spent literally years getting colorization experts to add the colors into the images. Now, colorization has a very, very bad reputation because a lot of it has been done on the cheap. And also something like It's a Wonderful Life doesn't need to be in color. But if this is trying to show you a piece of history, do you know what? People in 1914 did not see in black and white. It is a false image to begin with. So trying to add colorization to it makes it look more real and natural to us. And because they spent years and millions doing it, they've done it right as opposed to some half-hearted colorization of It's a Wonderful Life or something like that, okay? And then a third layer of realism. They got expert lip readers in to look at what people were saying in these in this footage and then working out that, argument's sake, if it was a Lancashire regiment, then they're clearly going to have a Lancashire accent. And so they therefore add in what's actually being said in this silent movie. So when you add all these three factors together, what you get is a far more real image of World War One. But there is a huge but here. I have just told you three synthetic processes being overlaid on original, if you like, documentary information. You see, the thing about They Shall Not Grow Old is I had to do a neon on it because it does have one foot in the past and one foot it very much in the now. It's all got to be about computers, hasn't it? Yes, but 
I am well aware that I've I've had sort of run-ins with historians. And basically they they make valid points that look, history's history. You shouldn't monkey around with it. You shouldn't dumb it down. You shouldn't do other things to it. It's it's history and it should be res- treated with the same respect as let's say a chemical formula or a uh, physics uh, you know a physics formula something like that you know e equals mc squared 1066 october the 14th battle of hastings it's the sort of same thing in terms of immutable moments uh, things that you cannot argue with and of course the historians are absolutely right i have been accused sometimes of yes like i said dumbing things down or it isn't as simple as that or you know you mentioned this person you didn't mention that person it's like okay fine but we also have to think about audience here as well i am not doing neon for people to sit down write everything i'm saying and turning it into dissertations at university by the way if you're doing that you're doing it wrong you will get a fail but what I'm trying to do is get people re-engaged with history to perhaps reveal the spit of history you never knew before. And I've been getting lovely feedback about that. Thank you. And I would put they shall not grow old into similar territory as that in the sense that it is playing fast and loose with history. If you are looking at it as a primary source, as a something that happened actually then and there, you can't use it as that. But in terms of reassessing, re-exploring World War One, I think it's an essential tool. So I'm going to sort of keep butting up against this utter dichotomy in the sense that they shall not grow old could be considered dangerous and could set a dangerous precedent. But at the same time, it is absolutely essential and it's a very potent tool for both historians, but something like a history teacher as well. Oh, my goodness, I'm all over the place on this one. And it's going to it's going to lead us into other weird and wonderful areas. Going back to the actual documentary, I've just told you its biggest selling point. It basically brings World War I to life. And therefore, you feel cheated when you first start watching it because it's like, oh, oh, it's not in widescreen. Oh, it's in grainy black and white. Oh, what's this going on? (laughs) Because what he does is he shows you, in essence, this is what I've got to work with. And then, you know, the first, let's say, 15, 20 minutes is about when people signed up and when people... You know, people's thoughts at the beginning of the war. And then when you get to the front, the screen goes widescreen and it goes colorized and the sound kicks in. Now, I've been mentioning voiceover. It's not just the voiceover of, you know, recreation of this silent footage, but they've actually got veterans of the war talking over it. Now, doing the maths, if this came out in 2018, that means these people will have to be well over 100 years old. And that's not what's happening. In fact, uh, probably the most British name ever. You want a British soldier, Tommy called this, the last British soldier, Harry Patch of World War One, who fought in World War One. He died a few years ago. So these are not living documentary recorded voices instead well if we're looking at documentary as a medium for a moment it's been around for about a hundred years there were documentaries about world war one being made during world war one and indeed there are a few slightly earlier ones on sort of history or not history natural history i should say natural history 
documentary type things, very early ones happening perhaps just before World War One. So these things were out there. However, if you're looking at the, if you like, the granddaddy, you know, where did documentary suddenly become an event, suddenly become essential? Then it's got to start with the world at war. This was a 1970s British documentary series about World War Two, and it went on for something like 20 episodes. There were additional episodes added after the initial run. It gets a bit confusing and, and like hard to define. But basically, if you want to see a really strong overview of World War Two, you go to the World at War. You know, some of the graphics, things like the maps might look a little bit old fashioned nowadays. But, you know, you've got interviews with people like Albert Speer. You've got, you know, uh, you know, all this raw footage, hours and hours of this black and white footage from World War Two, perhaps sometimes even some some color stuff from like the Pacific. So this is uh, an amazing documentary. And the voiceover was done, uh, done by none other than Sir Laurence Olivier, who basically growls his way through it. He just, he perform, you know, considering this is voiceover, and right now I'm aware I'm doing a voiceover, he is putting in a performance that should win him an Oscar, and yet you never actually get to see him. It's an amazing documentary series, and as I believe, it's never actually been off air since it came out in the 70s. It's always been rerun somewhere, and nowadays in, in the wonderful world of, sort of digital TV and stuff like that, you'll be able to find it somewhere. Please, please do check it out. However, uh, what, pop mo what most people don't realise is, like everything else in life, this was actually a sequel. So um, there was, uh, in the 1960s, basically commemorating 50 years of World War I, they did a series called The Great War, where they pulled together lots of footage from The Great War, and they recorded, you know, men now coming up to retirement age, perhaps a little bit older, talking about their experiences in the trenches of World War I. And so what Peter Jackson did is he went back to those recordings. So these are still old men. These are still men who are now looking back on their youth, you know, who perhaps you know, their memories have faded a little bit in certain areas. But by taking these recordings from, again, about 50 years ago and digitally cleaning them up and not every version you're hearing in They Shall Not Grow Old was actually used for the Great War either. So this is sort of like rediscovering an old form of documentary and being modernised yet again. So you can see why They Shall Not Grow Old, in essence, is saying this is what we can do with documentary footage and recordings in the 21st century. So something from a hundred years ago can be re-preserved, recreated, re-invitalized, and brought to a brand new audience. Important, isn't it? So uh, thinking about all that being pulled together, you can see that this is a monumental effort. This is why we haven't heard much from Peter Jackson for a few years, because this has taken considerable time, effort, and, and interest. And what's come out the other end is in many ways as epic and as important to the conversation about film as Lord of the Rings was. I mean, Lord of the Rings nowadays is just, oh yeah, I love Lord of the Rings. I liked somebody's comment when it when they started coming out in the early 2000s. That basically, the comment was, this is this generation's Star Wars. You know, when the first three Star Wars, original Star Wars movies came out in the 70s and 80s, it was lightning in a bottle. Although technically 
bits of them have kind of been seen before, pulling that all together, the visual effects, the acting, the kinetic screenplays, all this kind of stuff, the cliffhanger at the end of Empire Strikes Back, all this stuff together means that it, it was just a phenomenon, an event, and something that is like a, a tentpole in the history of cinema. It's the same thing with The Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson, I'd always been a fan of his. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of the sort of the splatter gore stuff, but The Frighteners, starring Michael J. Fox, is a kind of forgotten, really good movie. And that came out. But, you know, this is the man who created The Frighteners and Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles. And, like, why is he doing Lord of the Rings and sort of filming them all back to back? I will eventually do a, a neon on Lord of the Rings. But the point is, we can forget how important, how much Lord of the Rings changed cinema. Just just like Star Wars changed cinema. And I would argue Peter Jackson's now done this again with documentaries. Uh, so now let's talk about some of the problems of this. So one of the things I noticed is at no point is a specific date or a specific location mentioned. And this is important because when you've got all these uh, first-hand accounts of what it was like in the trenches they weren't all necessarily in the same regiment in the same place at the same time. You might have had somebody at the Somme, somebody at uh, Passchendaele, etc., etc. And they, these things, these recordings and, and memories might have been separated by years as well. Somebody might be talking about their experience in 1915. Somebody might be talking about their experience in 1918. You know, those were, by then, those were quite different wars. And even the footage gives this away. I don't want to get too geeky here, but at the beginning of World War One, pretty much all all the powers wore non-steel helmets. They basically wore, well, in the case of the British, they wear cloth caps. In the case of the Germans, they wore the Pickelhaube, which was the, the famous sort of leather helmet. It wasn't steel, actually. It was a sort of leather helmet with that spike on the top, and they would cover it with sort of a bit of camouflage. Neither the cloth cap nor the leather helmet is going to protect you from shrapnel bursts above your head. And very quickly, when the trenches started going up, if you like, the fire wasn't going left to right, it was going from up to down. And therefore, the trenches would protect you from machine gun fire and small arms fire and things like that. But in terms of shrapnel shells bursting over you, you were completely vulnerable. A cloth cap is just going to be shredded by shrapnel, okay? And they talk about the shrapnel shells and show you them, even in They Shall Not Grow Old. Now, why do I mention all this? Because sometimes when they're talking about the battle, they're showing sort of smiling faces of men sitting there in those cloth caps, which means we're looking at footage from 1914 or early 1915. But then you'll very quickly cut to a group of pit soldiers sitting there with the steel helmets. So those steel helmets, and steel helmets were basically introduced to pretty much all sides, which were fighting in trenches, because you realise that it was a very cheap and easy way to protect your troops. Now, there's also a, a brief photo of somebody in full body armour. Yeah, there's, there is the comment of, wh why didn't they wear more armour? Because the more armour you're wearing, the heavier you'll be, the more exhausted you'll get, the harder it'll be for you to sort of creep, uh, to crouch down. You know, if you're wearing 60 pounds of, of solid steel plate, then, you know, it might be hard to get yourself up out of the mud again. Just ask the people, the knights at the Battle of Agincourt, for example. Uh, oh, little little fact here, little side fact that, uh, um, you know, Battle of Agincourt, mud was a really big consideration. At the Somme, mud was a really big consideration. The river that flows through Agincourt is called the Somme. It's in the same floodplain 
as the Battle of the Somme. They were not in the same area, but sort of like further downstream, if you like. So, little fact there about mud and the Somme. So, the fact is that while it's very easy to say, you know, everybody should have been given perhaps a like a, a steel shield that they could have perhaps held in front of them as they went towards the enemy machine guns, or you know, wore full body armor. First of all, that's staggeringly expensive, but more practically, it's really cumbersome and heavy in muddy conditions you know those you know if you'd crack cowed behind a shield you wouldn't be able to see exactly where you're going you would have invariably fallen over and then you got a break in the line and then other people are going to get machine gunned it's you know it just didn't work they came up with other solutions to trench warfare the most notable one being the tank hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, all of this is kind of going on in in they shall not grow old so you've got this the steel helmets being mixed in with cloth caps that would never have been a thing on the front and if somebody's talking about under fire i have no idea where they are being under fire in theory they could be talking about the the mesopotamian campaign fighting the ottoman empire the ottomans also had machine guns and the experience of being machine gunned at or fired upon was the same be it in the balkans in the middle east or in the western front so you don't know the context of the story but when it's very carefully pieced together you know peter jackson you know he is dripping in reverence with this he is not trying to fool you or deceive you or pull the wool over your eyes but he's only got a finite amount of material to work with so if he is a case of i might have to pull something from over here to tell the story from over there and it works well he's trying to tell you a story and and his goal and it absolutely works is bringing world war one to life the problem with any black and white footage is we know it's artificial and it therefore creates an almost sort of comfort barrier between us and the horrors of war And I want to come to that because while it is rated 15, I let my kids sit down and watch it. They're 12 and 10. You might be thinking, that's a bit harsh, Jem. But I would rather they they see that war is a horrible thing that destroys human lives than, 
you know, I've, they've seen lots of classic movies too. But the problem with uh, something like The Longest Day or, uh, I don't know, um, uh, The Eagle Has Landed, not that that was a real event or anything, or The Battle of Britain and things like that is, uh, you know, to keep them sort of family friendly back in the 60s is there's a very minimal amount of death and damage you know people go "Eh," and then clutch their chest and fall over and that's it you don't get to see what happens to a human being when you know high explosive rips that body apart and that footage or has always existed about world war one but of course it's been in grainy black and white and what peter jackson does is he he colorizes it and he adds perhaps some false context but some necessary context to it there is a moment in the in the in the in the documentary i i don't know whether this is a spoiler or not i'm going to tell you one of the tricks which is incredibly powerful uh but you know you know what happens in world war one millions of men will die uh and ultimately the allies defeat the central powers but uh what happens is they have a they have a picture of a man who's laughing and smiling. And then you have a picture picture of a corpse. And that corpse looks remarkably like that man. And then you, you get another one. They do this, I think, three times in total with sort of a voiceover at the same time talking about the horrors of the machine guns, uh, you know, and, and how decimated their, annihilated their, their regiments were in certain situations. And that's extraordinarily powerful. And that's the bit that's clearly rated 15 and my boys were quiet and thoughtful. They weren't traumatized. You know, they, they, I didn't torture my children or anything like that. But they got the message that if there is any way to ever not be in a war, you want to do that option. You, you don't want to sign up and things like that. But what I found fascinating was my wife's reaction to that and an earlier section as well. And it does show you how inert we are in certain situations. So sticking with that moment for for a second, my wife is, uh, she's an English major. She uh, She's also a writer as well. You know, she likes her words, okay? And we have had, I have had this argument many times. I think World War I is the single most misunderstood moment in history. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many forgotten moments of history. I've written a book about that called Forgotten History. There's over 180 different people and events where you're going to sit there going, well, I didn't know that. Check it out if you want to. But there's a difference between forgotten. You know, nobody really cares about, I don't know, um, uh, the Battle of the Golden Spurs or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's just forgotten. But then a lot of people think they know about World War One, and that's usually not helpful. When you get people thinking they know something about an event, it doesn't necessarily mean they know that event. So, you know, World War One nowadays is quite often t- taught by using something like Blackadder Goes Forth. Now, when Blackadder the TV series were made, they were comedies first and foremost. They just happened to be set in a historical period, and they trot out all the cliches about World War One, the uncaring generals, the fact that, you know, after uh, uh, 10,000 people have died, we've managed to get this one-to-one scale of this map. It's like, it's like, ooh, look, there's a little worm. You know, so we've managed to get this one square metre of, of land from the Germans. Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of grim but funny. And if it starts a conversation about World War One, that's fine. But a lot of people stop at Blackadder and think that's what it was. But, you know, 
Blackadder was never meant to be used as a, a documentary or, or as something in, in children's uh, history classes. But if it at least gets people interested in it and perhaps bring some of the situations to life and then you talk about the real history, that's fine. But there's another side to World War One that confounds things, which is you get all the war poetry. Now, I'm not against the war poetry. War poetry can be very powerful. But I've always said, why, why is it that one? Of all the wars, why is World War I in Britain known as the war poem one? For, for the record, in somewhere like France, it, you know, there wasn't a lot of famous poems associated with World War I, so they use footage and photos. They don't have to learn their French equivalent of Dolce et Decorum Est. We don't remember something like the Crimean War purely through poetry. There is the famous poetry about the charge of the Light Brigade, but actually we use photos. And it was sort of the first large war, not the uh, not the first war, but the first large major war to have you know, photos of what's going on, although they, none of them were frontline photos. You know, some, some wars are remembered through their famous paintings about them. And then you get something like World War II where it's all about the footage. But there was also lots of powerful war poetry from World War II. My point is this. World War I has lots of ways into it. Why do we narrow it down to war poetry? Now, gas, gas, uh, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling. I had to learn that at school. I'm not a huge poetry fan. And that's a problem if you're trying to teach a subject purely through one process alone. Uh, So, you know, the fact that now there is a new way to explain World War One to a modern audience, that gets 10 out of 10 to me. And what I found fascinating is my wife has always said, Jem, you don't understand it. People aren't going to read an entire book about World War One, which is true. And she goes, you know, the thing that poetry does is it, it's an entire novel distilled into a couple of paragraphs. You know, a a a beautiful poem gives you all the drama and all the power and impact of several chapters of of uh, a book condensed and distilled into this epic sliver of time and words. And I think that's a beautiful description of poetry. But what I found fascinating was that while we're sitting there watching it, my uh, and we got to the battle scene and we saw you know, the, the eviscerated bodies, she turned to me and said, I'm not sure I can handle this. I might have to step out of the room. Should we stop this for the children? Now, she's never once said that about the war poetry. And I think that kind of very politely proves my point. If you know the, the poems are a good thing for the kids to learn, poetry is an important part of understanding any language. Uh, but it's not the only way to understand an historical event. And the other problem is if you get something like Wilfred Owen, tragically, he died about a week before the war ended. And a lot of these war poets died in the trenches. And you therefore get this feeling of futility. But that's not what happened at the end of World War I. The Allies won. It wasn't a draw. And later on, weirdly, you can actually say the Nazis have something in common with the sort of the hippie peace movement of the 1960s in the sense that both those groups decided that World War I was a was a bloody pointless stalemate and that there you know that it should never have happened Uh, now 
I think I can agree on it should never have happened, but it wasn't a bloody stalemate. Uh, after the initial German uh, Kaiserschlacht, the Germans threw everything they got into one last roll of the dice at the start of 1918, spring of 1918. They sent in stormtroopers. That's a real world, back to Star Wars. But they, they literally assault troops, which used things like pistols and grenades and machine guns and uh, even sharpened spades. Nice. Uh, and they just sort of uh, just pushed on and it didn't matter if they got separated from the main army the idea was to just keep pushing keep pushing don't worry about where everybody else was and it nearly broke the allied lines but that was it that was the last roll of the dice of the germans in terms of offensive capabilities after that that ran out of steam they'd in essence run out of men they had enough men to hold the line and not a lot else so then after that from in the from the summer of of 1918 to november the 11th 1918 well it's called the hundred days it wasn't called that at the time obviously but it's a hundred days in a row of moving forwards of victories and it's the single longest period of victory in british military history that doesn't sound like a defeat to me but it was interesting that even as they were signing the armistice it was recognized by a number of generals on both sides that some people might be able to spin this, and particularly with the Germans. The Germans surrendered while they were still on French and Belgian soil. They hadn't got in, the Allies hadn't got into Germany yet. But the German high command knew that, well, I mean, the entire navy by the end of the war, by the last week of the war, was in open revolt. Germany was beginning to break down into uh, socialist and communist revolutions. Germany was not capable of fighting any any longer. That's why they basically signed the armistice. But this all gets a little bit muddled together. And when you add the war poetry on top of that, you, you know, there can be just this feeling of all these men did was sit in the trenches for four years and get shelled. And that's terrible, disgusting and horrible. And what They Shall Not Grow Old does a very good job of is is completely deconstructing. I nearly said blown away. That would be poor choice of words. Uh, deconstructing this the, this thing and going back to the other thing my wife had difficulty with is the opening where they where these men describe the joys of wanting to sign up. Now we know that there's going to be this sort of muddy trench warfare and it won't be over by Christmas and millions will die etc. But this is the thing you need if you're going to like history. You need to think about how these people thought during that era. This is why I think it's always a bad idea to use modern morals to condemn somebody from the past. You have to use contemporary model morals. Now, if the contemporaries thought that they went too far, they went too far. But if to our modern eyes they they were you know, horrible for whatever reason, well, nobody was thinking like that 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, etc., and also it is worth pointing out that why, why does, you know, 21st century morals win? You know, maybe in the 23rd century, we'll look at the 21st century and go, oh, my goodness, how wrong were they? So, yes, just picking the morals of the moment doesn't isn't a very effective way of judging anything really from the past. Although it's fine for judging things from today. OK, right. Let, let's let's move on, shall we? So, yes, at the beginning, it talks about how the men were itching to, to sign up. And and this is the thing. 
it's fascinating hearing talking about people uh, people saying you know wanting to fight for king and country and there's no sneer to that there's no cynicism there's no sort of but to it or punchline to it these people were patriotic in 1914 britain had the world's largest empire the world has ever seen and probably will ever seen the sun genuinely never set on the british empire why would you not want to defend that uh you know most wars up until that point had been you know fairly easy affairs now the, the you know you you can look at some of the uh, wars just before world war 1 such as the first and second balkan war the boer war uh, the russo japanese war and you could say the writing was on the cards on some of this stuff you know the the maxim gun the heavy machine gun was starting to be used regularly on the battlefield uh, it's just that they weren't using you know the zulus didn't have them and the british did um but, Okay, if you want to get really technical about it, no Maxim gun was ever used against the Zulus. However, a very, very much like a Zulu tribe called the Matabeles uh, in in uh, modern day Zimbabwe were literally machine gunned down by a guy called Cecil Rhodes, who set up the country of Rhodesia after that battle. That was a that was a sidebar. That was a you know epic sidebar. I apologise for just throwing that in there. Um, so they shall not grow old. Is essential because it takes you to a time which we can't really relate to anymore the excitement of finally showing british power against the rising power of germany the excitement of starting the i mean there are the amount of smiling faces and laughter and music and lines like you know it was like a camping trip we generally enjoyed ourselves with a little frisson of danger in the background. It's like, that is not what the war poetry says. But the other critical thing, and you know, perhaps the most important deconstruction that, that, that is there in, them, in, in it, is pointing out nobody stayed in the trenches for four years. That's not a thing. But if you read a poem or, you know, R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End again, I mean, that's been made into a movie, I think, four times. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it isn't all about sitting in bunkers, uh, being shelled. Uh, you know, the, the you know basically the average soldier stay, was rotated off the front line after four days, maximum ten. The, the delay would be because you're in the middle of a battle, but you weren't under constant artillery fire. You weren't spending all your time in the trenches. The generals knew that if you stick troops into a muddy hellscape they will degrade so you need to rotate them pretty regularly that all sides recognize that for the record so hearing these soldiers talking about if you like the good as well as the bad the camaraderie you know uh, the fact that they were you know the, the weird obsession with plum and apple jam and when are we ever going to get strawberry you know uh, it, it, it's it is an absolutely essential uh, a documentary which I cannot recommend enough for you to it might still be on the iPlayer it probably isn't by the time you're listening to this podcast but you know what go out and shell, you know, shell out three four pounds and rent it on something like Amazon Prime or buy a copy I believe this is actually done by the Imperial War Museum in which case go to the Imperial War Museum website I'm pretty sure you can buy a DVD of it or something like that but this is something if you haven't seen you've got to see and if you don't own you probably should it's something you could perhaps watch every Armistice Day or Veterans Day or whatever it's called in your country but the last thing I wanted to say is you know, like I say, it is dangerous that, you know, it, things have been chopped together to, to make this story and it's all done with best intentions. But it does make me worry a little bit because Peter Jackson is an Oscar winning director whose grandfather was in the war and he wanted to do it right. 
But what's to stop somebody to do it wrong, to start manipulating all this stuff and turning it into a propaganda piece or, you know, ch changing and altering? That, if you like, is the danger. As soon as we start adding these extra layers of fakery to make it more real, then what's to stop other people doing it for ill rather than for good? I have no answer to that, but, you know, it's 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 a potential. There's no doubt about it. The last thing I wanted to say while I was watching it is like, you know, what's the earliest you could do this with? You know, you need actual footage from maybe not the front line. And this is the thing. There was no footage from literally front line fights. OK, uh, in World War One. So, you know, at certain points it flashes to to pictures and and sometimes just sort of lithographs as in you know images rather than pic pictures photos and things like that to to give you this sense of the the battle because they didn't you know nobody could w run up with an actual camera and start hand cranking as the bullets were flying that just was impossible you do get some sort of shell attacks and things like that and you get sort of artillery pieces blasting away and things like that so um uh, but, you know, those were sort of done from the safety of, you know, behind the front lines. Um, but it's all very cleverly pieced together to give you this at least illusion of you seeing uh, a battle, you know, fighting it out. So I was sitting there and thinking, well, what else could you do this with? Um, you know, I mentioned the Russo-Japanese Russo War. You know, that was about 1905. There's footage from that. There's also uh, the Boer War, technically the Second Boer War, and I think that would be fascinating because, again, the grainy black and white certainly doesn't bring the African savannah to life. And I think that, you know, I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure some that there has to be some recorded real veterans of the Boer War describing what happened to them. And if not, you could go down the route of Laurence Olivier or, um, you know, some of the other uh, documentaries where there are written journals, uh, uh, you know, of, of people's experiences in the Boer War. You get actors to actually read them out. Um, uh, like Burns's uh, Civil War, for example, uh, documentary series where they get very famous people to, to read out uh, various people's thoughts on the American Civil War. Anyway, so you could you could do a They Shall Not Grow Old for the Boer War. Uh, for the Russo-Japanese War. And I'm also going to say, and this is a war that's often completely forgotten, the Spanish-American War, which happened basically contemporary with the Boer War. And I've checked online. There is footage of, of this war. And I'm pretty sure that if you scoured the American National Archives, you could probably get to an hour's worth of footage. And when you add to that, you know, sort of uh, first-hand accounts and so on and so forth, and photos as well, just like, you know, Peter Jackson does at key moments, I'm pretty sure you could create, you, you know, you could colorize and bring to life something like that, which I think for Americans would be fascinating. You know, America claims it was never an empire builder. Well, you know, 13 colonies didn't cover the whole of continental America. You had to basically fight a war of expansion across uh, against the natives to to create modern day America. That's an uncomfortable statement, but it's a true statement. What right did the white settlers in, let's say, Delaware have to Wyoming? And the answer is none. But, you know, might is right. And nowadays it's all one big happy country. That's a very effective absorption, but it's a land empire. But even if you want to turn around to me and say, well, that's not really the case, it's worth pointing out that the fighting for the uh, in the Spanish War was never in Spain or indeed in America. It was in some of the Spanish colonies, mainly Cuba and the Philippines.
I always wondered as a kid, why in World War II, what were the Americans doing in the Philippines? That's not America. It's because it was basically an American colony. It was part of an American empire. The The reason why it's very easy to forget about America having an empire is because it wasn't very big. Guam, um, you know, a, a few little islands in, in the Caribbean and the Philippines, you know, that doesn't really stack up to the French Empire or the British Empire or the Russian Empire. So, yeah, we can just sort of forget about those. Well, maybe a documentary showing you know, how hard it was. I've mentioned this before in the Predator Neon. You know, America throughout the 20th century fought multiple wars in uh in jungles and so you know this is one of the earliest examples of american soldiers fighting in dense foliage against you know locals who'd sort of know the lay of the land and uh you know although they they ultimately won after some very hard fighting in the philippines but i would love to see some of the footage of that recolorized with you know put into context you know reintroducing a completely forgotten war to a whole new generation so I you know that's where I'm going to stop with this. I think that they shall not grow old is important in so many ways and I hope I've shown that to you and at the very least I hope you at least watch it and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe you think I'm being too precious about the mixing the the technology to create a slightly skew whiff uh, uh, reality of a of hundred years ago or maybe you think my comments are fair I think it depends on whether you're just a casual viewer or a historian but those are my thoughts for what it's worth thank you very much for listening I'm going to remind you please please do uh, review Neon on whatever podcast f- format you're listening to this on it all helps thank you very much you can find us on uh, patreon.com forward slash Neon Podcast. You can talk to us on Twitter at Neon Podcast or Jim Deducci. We're everywhere, people. Come and say hello. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.